probably the greatest gift when I think of like the, what the divorce gave me is it gave me a chance to really reevaluate who I want to be. And that's been a real evolution, but that's probably the greatest gift that it gave me is that opportunity to reset. It's made me a much happier, happier person. Having decided on a life of public service, Christina Marty pursued public administration both in various jobs related to health and human services and within an academic context. At a certain point, health became something much more than the academic for her. Somehow, her ability to find her way through came from an earlier dose of adversity. Find out how learning what you can and can't control can ultimately guide you to a little serenity and gratitude on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today, I'm here with Christina Marty, and we are going to talk about roads that we get on and discovering maybe the why and where it's going to take us next. So, Christina, thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me, Leslie. I really am excited. Good. So, I ask the same questions, even though it does become exciting because everyone answers them differently, of all of my guests, and they are these two questions. When we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? So I came to Dartmouth from a small town that was a suburb of Syracuse, New York, population five or 6,000 people. And I came to Dartmouth really excited to leave upstate New York, to see the world, to grow, to kind of discover who I was. I was a really enthusiastic learner. I enjoyed my time away from Dartmouth probably as much as my time at Dartmouth. I did a Tucker Fellow in Jersey City, teaching for a private school and living in a convent. (laughs) That was interesting. I uh, went to Italy. I did the Washington program. I also loved my major. It was great. Which was government, right? Which was government, yep. And I would say that I was intense. I think I'm probably still intense. I was very, very driven by achievement to a fault, but that's who I was. And when I left Dartmouth, I knew that I wanted to have a positive effect on the world in some way. I really wanted to do some form of public service. I really thought that I would get an MPA as well as a teaching degree and do some sort of focus on educational administration. As it turned out, I left Dartmouth, got my MPA, but decided maybe it wasn't that the education part of it was so important to me, but it was women and children. And so I, after getting my MPA, I worked for a housing authority as a grants administrator for a little while. Then I took my favorite job as a practitioner working for the county administrator in Onondaga County for health and human services. I did that for a little while. Then I got married and my husband accepted the clerkship in Albany, so we needed to move. Then I worked for a nonprofit there for a little while, coordinating a pregnancy prevention program and doing some community-based research. Love the community-based research. And so then I went back and I got my PhD in public administration. But again, public administration, it really focuses on training folks to be leaders in public and nonprofit organizations 
And so this commitment to public service and a lot of my research is focused on health and human services. So that kind of thread has followed me through my path. Christina, did you go directly to the MPA program when you left? Yes, 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 I did. And it was supposed to be a year program. I did it in a year and a half because I was going to be there for three years because my boyfriend and fiance was getting a law MPA and he was going to be there for three years. So I didn't see like a huge rush. Yeah, yeah. But that's young since we were so, you were talking about kind of being a voracious student and you'd gone to DC, but that was still in a kind of Mm -hmm. academic setting. So you hadn't really done the administration. You'd been leading in other ways, but not in the practitioner world. So did you feel like when you finally got out, you were able to apply all this stuff or did it feel, you know, kind of what was that that feeling being a young person kind of pursuing this without having the earlier experience? I mean, so I work in and do advising in an MPA program now. And when I have students come to my office and we have a lot of students who are really young and go directly from their undergrad to their MPA. And I'm just kind of privately groaning thinking, well, it'd be really good to be in the real world for a little while. And let's say something crazy, like, I don't know what I want to do. And I'm running out of time. Them. And I'm like, wow, oh, I'd love to be 22 again. It would be so awesome. You are less than half my age. So, you know, there is, I, I mean, I think I academically, you know, I, I was a good writer. I had good communication skills, but I think that that wisdom that comes with life, I was short on that. You know, I think you get that from working. I also think you get that from living and just being in the world and having different things happen to you. And I, I would have been much better my job now, probably than I was then, even though I had the, you know, the, certainly the intellectual and analytical com- ability to do it. But I mean, I think when you're in a job and you're doing it, administration, and ironically, I do administration now in my job quite a bit. I'm a professor, but I'm also an associate dean. And so I do a lot of management and I lean so much on interpersonal skills. And that's at least 50% of my job now, probably more. And taking that time to think about how you want to convey that message and that extra 15 minutes of reflection time of how you set it up, how people are going to hear it, how you frame things is so important. And that, that investment that you make up front, I would have said at 23, oh, it's a great idea. Who's not going to like it? Well, now I know there's a lot of reasons why you have to sell people and why you have to think it through. And all that legwork is just as important as the idea. Yeah, I think that's funny but that you said, ironically, that you're in this administrative, but I don't see the irony in, it, in that at all. It just seems like a natural progression of the leadership work you've done in the field as a practitioner, putting together with all of the academic lenses that you bring to it. So you're in the school of, where, where do you position yourself <laughs> academically? So I'm in the Department of Public Administration within the College of Community and Public Affairs at Binghamton University. There are six different colleges at Binghamton, and I'm associate dean of the college where I'm situated. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk, I do want to get to the administration part in your life as a dean, but let's talk about your research and the work that you do, because there has been that 
golden thread throughout everything that you do that really still centers women, children, kind of well-being in what you do, right? Yeah. So I've done a lot on the management of health and human service organizations because I am really interested in how these organizations are run because I think of the populations that they serve. They serve, for example, homeless, people with substance abuse issues, people with serious and persistent mental illness, children, at-risk children, essentially people without voices. And so ensuring that these individuals are receiving the services that they need, often these are people who are very vulnerable and often these services are delivered when people are in crisis and how important that is that these organizations are well run. You know, so that's one set of research is really performance of how these services are delivered, but also how these populations are involved in the service delivery, how they are given a voice is a secondary path that I've gone down and actually ended up doing a book about and how clients and others in the community have voice in health and human service organizations. Of course, that work is augmented by the teaching work that you do. And now, how long has it been that you've been in these more administrative roles in addition to all of that? So it's kind of a I started in 2006 as an assistant professor. There was kind of upheaval in my department in 2008, and it's different than the role I have now, but I was director of student services in addition to being a professor, just because kind of through accident of who was on research leave at the time, and I was the best person to do it of the people that were going to be here. Mm -hmm. I think it might have played out differently had circumstances been different, but I did that role. And then I was tapped to be associate dean. I went on sabbatical for a semester and then came back 2015, and I've done the associate dean role since. So all of that feels very cohesive and linear, and yet I know that life can be messy. So there have been other things going on in your life that might have been harder or you hadn't really planned out and seen. So do you want to maybe share some of those things with us? Yeah, absolutely. And I think they've enriched my life actually in a a lot of ways, but they've been very challenging. So I mentioned that I um, got married and moved to Albany and then went back, got my PhD in good, intense fashion. I had um, my first child when I was in the middle of my PhD program. I was seven months pregnant when I took my comprehensive exams. I had Bryce in 2003. And then I was on the job market again, because I like to be six to seven months pregnant when I do really important things (laughs) in my life. Um, And so I got my job at Binghamton and then had Darius two months later, started work when he was four months old um, and started my tenure track job. And that was a rough transition going and having him and having two kids and moving. And it was just, I, I remember thinking, wow, I don't think I can ever be so 
that first semester of teaching and, and that adjustment period thinking, wow, I think I might lose my mind. Um, <laughs> it's really, really hard. I didn't really think I could do it. And I kind of look back now and I think oh, that was, that was, that was kind of, it was just a little rehearsal. Bump in the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. So things went well and I have these two delightful boys and I'm, my marriage is going along and it's okay. And, and actually it was, it was a, what I thought was a pretty good marriage and I got tenure and had balanced all these things and it was hard. My husband was an attorney. I was a professor. We had great childcare. We managed to do a lot of things. And then in 2012, I guess the way I would describe it, I kind of describe my marriage was there was a shot to the head and then just kind of a slow bleed for four or five years. Um, and it was just really, really hard. And it was hard on, obviously, me. It was hard on my husband at the time. But, you know, we were, we had chosen this and we were, you know, we were the two people in the relationship, the people that I feel, you know, really didn't choose it or my kids. And there's a lot of chaos in yeah. the house. And it was just a really difficult time and a lot of soul searching, a lot of like, what am I going to do? I was in therapy for a while trying to just get my life together. And it was a really, really grueling kind of sad dissolution of a marriage. You know, and it, I think for me too, there was a lot of times where I think, you know, this is so crazy. There's so much fighting. My never grew up like this. Mm. I cannot believe this is my life. I cannot believe this is what my kids are seeing. And I think it's gave me insights and it's made me less likely now having come out the other side to judge. Mm. You really don't know. Like I was, there are multiple points that I'm not proud of what I did, not proud of my role in it. And you think, God, I can't believe this. I, I can't believe that these are my set of choices and that I've made this choice or not made this choice. And it's made me much less judgy, I guess, yeah. because you, you sit and you realize, you know, no one thinks they're going to be in these crazy situations. No one thinks they're going to make these crazy choices. But then life, there's so many things that come from the outside that you would not, you know, it's important people don't get a lot of choices and then yeah. people can be in a difficult place and not act like them, their best selves, right. um, not be always able to think outside themselves to hold it together. And I held it together at work. I was a good parent, certainly things that I regret, but I did a lot of things. Okay. But it was an incredibly hard time. And, you know, to the outside world, looked like I had it together, but it was just, you know, I was kind of hanging on by a thread for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think what also made it really hard is I didn't, because I was really struggling with what to do, I really was very private and that was a choice, but it made it very hard and I didn't lean on people mm. and I kept it to myself. And that probably didn't serve me. It, in some ways it served me well because you know, it made it my decision when I ultimately decided this just this is not going to work. This is just, this isn't what I want to do 
for the rest of my life. This isn't the marriage that I want. This is not going to be good for my kids. Uh, but it took me a long time to get to that point, but it was my decision. Like I, yeah. I know it was my decision. Right. So that's a good thing, but a bad thing is you're alone. And I mean, I didn't actually tell my parents I was getting a divorce until I placed an offer in a house. They'd been on away on vacation, in fairness. And I did it quickly. Like when I decided it took me forever to get to that point. But by the time I said to my husband, look, we really need, this is not going to work. I had put a purchase offer down within two weeks. So um, I moved very fast. So yes. it wasn't like, it wasn't like there were like months and months. I wasn't telling my parents. this. Yeah. Kind of but that's <laughs> where I see the irony though, Christina, is that, you know, you're an expert in these human services, you know, delivery systems and you yourself, you know, couldn't tap in to a support network that might've helped you. Yeah. yeah. I did. I did have a really great therapist. I mean, Good. it was, she was really amazing. And I, I saw her for, I guess, three and a half of the four and a half year, like, what am I going to do sort of thing. I just, you know, it took me a while to find my path in the first year to her. But after that, and she was my therapist after the divorce, which really, really helped me. And I really, I mean, she helped me not only, I think, with empathy, but also really acceptance of, you know, you have option A, and that's what you really, really, really want. But you got to accept sometimes you wanted option A, which in this case was marriage to this person. And it was going to be a good marriage. And that's what that's what option A was. But option A isn't there. And to get to that place of acceptance and say, okay, but I have B and C. I have B. I stay in this suboptimal marriage that's not going to be what I need. Honestly, I think it wouldn't have been good for my ex-husband in the long run. Certainly not good for my kids. And you know, that's option B and option C is go off and start again and lean into yourself and be vulnerable, but have a chance to rebuild and find happiness, not through path A, like you thought you would, but through path C and that acceptance of what one can control, what one can't, what's reasonable, huge lesson hugely helpful in getting more of uh, an acceptance of, of kind of reality. You know, I mean, I have the serenity prayer on my refrigerator at home. I have it at work. Very, very helpful. <laughs> yeah. Well, particularly because you, again, you, that's practice, right? You, that was the rehearsal for needing to really understand what is in your control, what is not in your control because you get blindsided again. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'll digress for one second. So I get my divorce and then I have this very important interim period. Again, I'm still seeing the same therapist. And it's at this point, you know, I've had the self-esteem to leave my marriage, but when I had mentioned that there was a shot in the head, a lot of the shot in the head, the casualty of it was self-esteem. And it took me a lot to like leave the marriage but he really needed to rebuild my self-esteem and to shape it a different way. And I mentioned at Dartmouth, I was incredibly self-driven and very achievement-driven. And 
when you have a colossal failure in your life, well, so to speak, of, of getting a divorce, like for me, it's not something I planned on. And there are a lot of things wrapped up in that. But to develop more of a self-esteem that's less about achievement, more about acceptance, focus on what you can control, what can't, loving yourself, even when things don't have the desired outcome, thinking about the effort that you put in, the kindness that you show to people, your empathy. I mean, it radically changed the way I looked at myself. It changed the way I looked at, at others. It has changed me in the workplace. It's changed me dramatically as a parent. I parent so differently now. I'm still intense, but I think I'm a, a softer version of who I used to be intensely. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm much more, you know, let's go on the windy path and that's okay. And that was really probably the greatest gift when I think of like the, what the divorce gave me is it gave me a chance to really reevaluate who I want to be. And that's been a real evolution, but that's probably the greatest gift that it gave me is that opportunity to reset. It's made me a much happier, happier person. And so fast forward, I kind of been doing a lot of work on myself and I meet this wonderful, wonderful person at work who is also divorced, does not have kids. We date for a while, about two years, and then COVID happens. And I'm very practical. And I said, George, we can't go to grocery two days a week and have two separate exposures. We've got to like minimize our risk. So George, with like eight hours, like decision lead time, uh, moved in to my house and my kids split time between me and my ex-husband, 50-50. And so my little cape went from having three people 50% of the time, one person, 100%, you know, there were other times, 50% of the time. Now I mean, four people and then a, two people and we made it work. And it was actually a really, I mean, I look at it as kind of a golden time because it was an opportunity. We really did a lot together. And yes, the pandemic was isolating, but we were in it together. And it gave my, he was my boyfriend at the time, but became my husband last year, an opportunity to really bond with my kids in a different way. He really now is a stepfather in every sense of the word. And he was even before we got married, but I largely credit it to COVID because he really got to know my kids in a different way. Mm. And that was a really, really wonderful kind of, I don't know, the pandemic, I have such mixed feelings about it because it's so horrible on so many levels and has brought so much pain. But in my personal life, it was this little kind of safe cocoon experience yeah. in some ways where really our love for each other really deepened and it. it's been, you know, very special. And so fast forward, we're having these kind of oddly magical year and a half to September, 2021. And I went to my primary care for a regular checkup, a medicine refill, and she felt, you know, listen to my heart, listen to my um, lungs, and then was just checking my lymph nodes. And she said, do you know that you have a swollen lymph node on the left side of your neck? I said, no, I had no idea. She said, all right, well, we'll do some watchful waiting. Fast forward 
CT scan, ultrasounds, trip to ENT, couple rounds of antibiotics, doesn't go away. Omicron is on the scene. Ideally, they would have done a surgical biopsy in December 2021. They can't get me into surgery because there's just too much COVID. So I do a biopsy when they take fluid uh-huh. you know, in the doctor's office from my neck, comes back ambiguous. Okay, all right, we really got to get you in to actually do a surgical biopsy. This is not going to be sufficient. Really good chance it's not cancer. And they're thinking it's lymphoma if it is. And January, I go in for my surgical biopsy, go back the next week thinking, you know, no big deal. Not going to see the CNT for a while. This is going to be great. Finally, we're going to have some closure because it could have been cat scratch fever. It could have been Lyme disease. It could have been so many things. But unfortunately, it turned out that it was metastatic squamous cell carcinoma, meaning that I had cancer in my lymph node, which unbeknownst, there was a marker um, in the labs that had been done. When I was actually told that I had cancer by the ENT, he did not realize that there was a marker for HPV. What he told me was really could be from anywhere in my body and had spread to my lymph node, which like, I got to tell you, get the cancer diagnosis is pretty awful. But then to be like, yeah, we don't know where it's from. <laughs> it's pretty awful. Fortunately, I was then referred to specialists who could narrow it down. And my luck from that point really took a very positive turn. And I think so much of life is perception, right? <laughs> and when you've been told, yeah, it could be from your liver, we don't know. And when they tell you, oh, no, it's from your throat, it's from the back of your oropharynx, and it's HPV positive cancer, which means it's positive for the HPV virus. It is actually great news because the cure rate is 80 to 85%. And when you're using Dr. Google, and needless to say, the cancer (laughs) cure rate is not 80, 85%. This sounds pretty awesome. And so from there, I had to have radiation chemotherapy. um, And this was all last year. And a lot of people think chemotherapy, you know, when they think of cancer, that that's the more grueling part of cancer treatment. In my case, um, it has a lot to do with where you're being treated with the radiation. And because it was to my throat, the way it was described, and I usually, as a layperson, it makes sense to me, is was like getting a giant sunburn to my throat. The radiation. Uh, The radiation. Yeah. And so um, it made eating extremely, extremely painful. You also have a lot of taste distortions. You lose taste. A lot of people end up on liquid diets by the end. They lose lots and lots of weight, some to the point that they have to be on feeding tubes with throat cancer. I was very lucky. I was also very determined. I actually, in part, because I'm kind of a foodie snob, I subsisted by the end largely on hot dogs. That's gross. Oh, wow. <laughs> I could taste them. I, could, I lost all sense of sweet, but I could still taste real salty stuff. Salty. The hot dogs with mustard still tasted like hot dogs and mustard. So I had a lot of those, but I was really sick <laughs> by the end. Um, but I didn't lose. I lost like five pounds, six pounds. It wasn't that bad. I, I also hated the way Ensure tasted. So I didn't do the supplement stuff, but I couldn't eat. I mean, it's hard to describe. Like, it's like 
a terrible sore throat. Like it's just awful, but it's uh-huh. really intense. Like in my case, it was just one part of my throat. So I would just like eat, um, but it was really hard. It was very, very uncomfortable. But I mean, like you never look at like a grilled cheese sandwich the way again, because man, when your throat is raw, that was oh. hard. Oh um, no. I don't know how else to describe it. But like everything, you just are so into what the texture is like. Yeah. Anyway, so I had a lot of like soft foods, but it's- Ice cream. <laughs> no, because it did taste disgusting. Like it's, I'm like a lifelong lover of chocolate. Chocolate tasted disgusting. Like everything, like almost everything tasted disgusting oh, no. by the end. And I had a chemotherapy that also gave you this metal taste. It distorts food. Particularly for a foodie who wants to like really enjoy this. This sounds horrible. And knowing that if you start telling yourself that like, this thing that I used to love just doesn't taste right. You hope you're not ruining it forever. So I can see why just not having chocolate yeah, and ice cream also, would be. You also don't know what you're going to get back. Yeah. I mean, you don't know the functionality you will have. Like people will have someone else in the same practice that I go to my radiation oncologist, the nurse told me he, after getting radiation after a year, spaghetti still tasted like chocolate. I myself thought that that would be okay. It's <laughs> like, wow, it's really interesting. But actually I've gotten my taste back, but you have residual effects. I've had some swelling in my neck. You swallow five to 700 times a day. So to not have that function is a big deal. <sighs> wow. Yeah. So extremely perspective giving, right? It also gives you this amazing sense of, of gratitude for what you have and every morning that I have my yogurt with raspberries now, it's like the best thing in the whole world. I'm so grateful every day I get to start my day that way. I will never yeah. take that for granted again. I will never take my cup of coffee for granted again. I wake up and every day that I feel good and I don't have to worry about a cancer diagnosis and I can open up my eyes and see the sun is a wonderful, wonderful day. And I had a, a sense of gratitude after my divorce for being so lucky, getting a second chance. You know, the gratitude I had then has only been magnified from this experience. You know, so I think that's a, a gift that I had from my divorce, but I've, I've built on that. And the other thing that I think that I've built on from my divorce, I would say my divorce, I mean, people think, oh God, cancer is so awful. For me, my divorce is actually harder than the cancer, even though the cancer was very physically, physically grueling. People know what to say to you. People are there. I was very public about it. I've continued to be very public about it. And to have that support was, and some people, you know, a lot of people don't know what to say. And people say crazy things. But I would take someone saying a crazy thing because you know they're coming from a place of, of mm. support and love, even if it doesn't come out right, than someone saying nothing. Because that's much harder. Because no, you're not fine. Your life has been turned upside down. But the support, and I've had just some amazing people and people that I would have expected. My husband, my mother, my mother texted me every day for 33 days, every time before radiation, every time before I went in, I love you. I'm thinking about you. I mean, it's things like that. And then my colleague at work who wasn't just there during, I mean, I had a few colleagues who were not just there at key, some key points, but all the time. My one colleague who would email me every day, especially in the recovery where people forget you're still sick. Just amazing, amazing support and love to be surrounded by. And people like, I was 
I liked this colleague, but he wasn't particularly close with her, yet she was a rock star for me. And it was so meaningful. And, you know, I hope I get to pay it forward to people. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. But, you know, the other gift that my divorce gave me, I mentioned this kind of ability to accept. And cancer is a lot about acceptance of what you can and cannot control. And there were lots of things that I couldn't control, like the diagnosis, what the cancer was going to be, how they're going to treat it. Even Omicron was kind of a nightmare <laughs> because it meant that I would go in, I wouldn't be able to have people with me all the time. I had to have my second surgical biopsy. I had to be dropped off the hospital door by my husband. This was like two weeks after being diagnosed for them to find the cancer because they were still looking for it. You know, I feel like my divorce was a dress, really the dress rehearsal for my cancer. You know, and there's different points. And I really remember I was diagnosed right before my 48th birthday. And I was crying a couple of days before my birthday to my husband. I'm like, I don't want this. I don't want to have cancer. I don't want to celebrate my 48th birthday with cancer. I'm so incredibly angry. I'm so sad. I can't believe this is happening. And I had this kind of moment of insight, which was like, wow, but I have to. I don't get a choice. I'm going to turn 48 and I'm going to have cancer. I can embrace it and have a good day. Or I can feel sorry for myself. My choice. That's what I get to control. And my 48th birthday was wonderful. <sighs> it was wonderful. But even more wonderful was my 49th birthday. <laughs> I didn't yeah. have cancer. And I was through this. Amazing. Birthday. And it was just glorious. And yeah. I will never again complain about a birthday. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I love that. And and I think that is actually the epitome of your earlier statement of still having the intensity, but a softer version of it. <laughs> like you're now intensely excited about birthdays and you're intensely <laughs> excited about, you know, some bad things that are happening, but that's, it's, you've, you've embraced it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I mean, I also think it gives you a real sense of your mortality and how fleeting our time is on this earth and how each day when I get up, I spend a lot more time, even when I send emails to students now, thinking about, okay, what is it I want to convey? And if it's like a missed assignment, a question, something that they haven't done, maybe that I would have liked, what message am I going to convey? How am I going to convey it? How am I going to convey it in a way that they might be able to hear it? And if they don't hear it, how can I know that I've done my best job, my, you know, the best that I could and whether it's received or not, because of course I can't control how they hear it. I can control the way I deliver that message and make sure that I deliver it with as much compassion as I can, but not whether it's received in the spirit in which it's sent. But that real intentionality of even the little things, because I think those little things add up and those little choices that you make every day, every day, you don't know whether you get it tomorrow. And to really live in this moment and to not always, oh, what's the next thing I'm going to do? No, today, today is the day that I have. Today is the day that I need to be present. Today is the day I need to, to physically focus on. Well, Christina, I'm so sad that those gifts had to be so hard won and earned, but those are great gifts to have and to pass on to your children and all the people around you, the compassion and the listening and the presence. 
I am so glad you are where you are. And thank you so much for sharing this part of your journey with us. Thank you. Thank you for letting me talk. Oh, actually, there's one other thing that I want to say. So I want to talk about my cancer and the fact that I have HPV associated cancer. And if there's actually one thing that I hope people remember about my type of cancer is it's almost 100% preventable if you have vaccine and the vaccine, kids can start getting it at age 11 or 12. It's a multiple dose vaccine, but it's crazy how effective it is. It's maybe 98, 99% effective. And it's recommended for everyone up to the age of 26. And then you can get it, I believe, up till the age of 45, but it depends on your personal history. And it may or may not um, make sense for you depending on your personal history, but you should talk with a physician about that. But it's kind of become a mission of mine to encourage as many people as possible to consider to get vaccinated. But we do have children in our lives or other young people that we come in contact with. And unfortunately, the vaccine take up for HPV is quite low when you compare it to something like the MMR vaccine, which I think is in the 80s that people percent yeah. that people get. It's pretty high. It's something like 45%. Of, it's very low. Um, well, and isn't MMR... It's required by the school. Required, right? but yeah. HPV isn't. No, it's not. Yeah. And, and it also is a lot of stigma because people think, right. oh, the only way with... you can get this disease is if you're promiscuous or it'll encourage people to have sex. That is not the case. 85% of Americans will have HPV in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Only a small, small, lucky percentage of us will develop cancer because of it, but it is the leading cause of cervical cancer. Now, oropharynx, which is the back of the throat, it causes, um, it used to be caused by um, drinking, heavy drinking and smoking. Now, 70% of those cases are caused by HPV. Wow. So there's a, a rise in it. But yes, again, so just most people will have HPV in their lifetime. Most people, it clears out, but there's no way of knowing whether you'll be that person or you will be unlucky. And you will later in life have an experience I would not wish upon anyone. And so I urge anyone who's listening to consider getting vaccinated. Maybe not anyone who's listening, but anyone who has someone who's eligible eligible to get vaccinated, advocating for them to get vaccinated. Right. Perfect public service (laughs) announcement from a public servant and and one who understands public messaging. So thanks so much. That was mother and cancer survivor Christina Marty, who also currently serves as Senior Associate Dean in the College of Community and Public Affairs and Professor of Public Administration at Binghamton University. As she suggested, if you have young people in your life, learn more about the HPV vaccine at cdc.gov HPV and encourage them to get the vaccine if eligible. Everyone here is eligible to become a follower or subscriber of our show. Just find us in your favorite podcast app and press that little button to get a new episode delivered to you each week with my guest and me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on Roads.